Thank you, David. Good morning again, church. I'm going to ask you to take a copy of God's Word, if you have one with you, whether that's on a book with pages or whether that's on your tablet or device this morning, I'm going to ask you to open up to the book of Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have some pew Bibles that are in the racks in front of you. Those are our gift to you. If you do not own a copy of God's Word, we invite you to take that, use that today and take that with you uh, as your copy of God's Word from us. As you're turning to Philippians chapter 2 this morning, I want us to uh, pause for just a moment before we read God's Word and remind us of what you and I are about to engage in for the next several minutes. One of the things that's probably true of you that I know was true of me for many years is that the, the more we go to church, the longer we're in church, the more we tend to get into the routine of church, and sometimes we, we lose the awe of what we are about to engage in. We've come here this morning as the gathered congregation of the church of the living Lord Jesus Christ, and we've come here today to hear from the Lord as the Holy Spirit speaks to us through His inspired Word. And so in just a moment, we are going to read the inspired word of the living God who has given us this word for this moment to teach us about himself and to shape us into the character of Jesus Christ. And so this is never a moment to be taken lightly or casually. I do not say those words this morning because I somehow believe in myself to be a powerful orator whose, whose human words are capable of changing lives and shaping destinies. I'm just a conduit by which God is is here to speak this morning. And while I am pastor of this local congregation, I do not believe that the power to see lives change today resides within the cleverness of my communication, but on the power of the Word of God. And I believe that there is a great danger for many, us, many of us in the church, especially with the issue of religious repetition, and that religious repetition without regular and careful inspection can often cause us to be dead to the Word of God and its power. And instead of coming as hungry disciples starving for the Word of God, many times we can come to church as bored religious consumers. And we have a tendency to evaluate the worship service and the sermon based on its entertainment value or how much we enjoyed the speaker's stories rather than understand that we come to this moment as a fellowship of saints who asked the Spirit of God to speak to a, a word to us this morning that is capable of changing us. I was thinking about this this morning in preparation, or this week in preparation for this sermon, and I just wanted to speak that word over you this morning. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus tells the disciples, those who were following Him, those who had come to believe that He was the Messiah, He would speak to them in parables, and as He would speak to them, He said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear, letting us know that Everyone has ears, but not everyone has ears to hear the word of the Lord. And he even also said in Luke chapter 8, Take care then how you hear. And Jesus placed as much emphasis on those who were receiving spiritual truth about the way that they heard the word of God as he did those who communicated spiritual truth. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you have come here with ears to hear the word. And if not... And as we read the word in just a moment, would you pray, God, give me ears to hear today. Give me a hunger for the bread of life that only the Lord can provide. And so with that in mind, I want to read for us Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And, and just again, in, in, in respect to this moment and in respect to the word of the Lord, would you just stand with me as we read God's word this morning? 
Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore, my beloved, he's speaking to the church, and he loves this church. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Would you pray with me, Father? I ask you to speak to us this morning through your word. I'm about to enter into dangerous territory as a man where I would proceed to speak for the Lord Jesus. And I can only do that through the power of your spirit. And so I pray this morning that you would anoint these words with your Holy Spirit and teach us what it means to be followers of you, to be children of God and lights in the world. We ask this by the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you be seated? Today we're going to continue in our series called The Joy of the Christ-Centered Living, or in our study through Philippians. And last week we took a few moments to, to look at one of the most important Christ-centered Christological passages in all of the Bible in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. We saw in that passage the tremendous humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul tells us how Jesus left the glories of heaven to take on human flesh, that, that Jesus literally left all of the glories of heaven to come and be like us in order to redeem us, to save us. That He took on our flesh, He took on our humanity, He took on our humanness to become one of us. And not only that, but He perfectly obeyed the Father's plan of redemption all the way to the point of death on the cross. And so we not only saw the tremendous humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we saw the glorious exaltation of the Lord Jesus that because of His willingness to obey the Father's plan, we now see that He has been gloriously exalted and universally acknowledged as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what Paul tells us in those six verses in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. And so that brings us the question, and that question is this, what are you and I as followers of Jesus Christ supposed to do in light of the supreme example of the glorious obedience and selfless service of the Lord Jesus Christ? When we read something like Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, the question is, what do I do in light of that? What do I do in light of that example of the Lord Jesus? What should God expect of you and me? This is exactly what Paul addresses in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And this entire passage, all the way beginning in chapter 1, verse 27 through this verse, is, is the challenge that Paul gives us to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll remember... In Philippians 1.27, after Paul speaks about his imprisonment, he challenges those Philippian Christians and he says, only live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And then he begins to explain what that looks like all the way through the verses that we read today. And he wants us to see that, that in light of this supreme example of Jesus Christ, that there's something that must mark the lives of those who claim to be his followers. 
And he's already mentioned several of those things. He, he tells us in verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1 that a life that is worthy of the gospel is marked by faithfully contending for the gospel in the face of opposition. He tells them about standing firm for the truth in the midst of a culture that they lived in that was continually opposing the gospel. And so if we're going to believe the gospel, we're going to demonstrate the worth of that by standing for the truth and contending for the gospel. He also tells us in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 that, that, that a life worthy of the gospel is one that works for unity with our fellow Christians. And so he talks to them about striving for peace with one another. And then in verses 3 and 4, and then, and then illustrated in verses 5 through 11, he tells us that a life worthy of the gospel is one that is marked by laying aside selfish ambition and conceit and humbly serving others and considering others as better than ourselves. And then today we're going to get to these verses in verses 12 through 18 when he shows us that a life that is worthy of the gospel is demonstrated by a life that works out the realities of our salvation with holy fear and a life that sets itself on being examples of integrity and witness to a dark and fallen world. Paul exhorts you and me in verse 14 to be blameless children of God who shine as lights or stars in the world. And that's really the central thought within these verses today. It's the picture of, of shining stars against the backdrop of a, of a dark culture. The picture that, that Paul has in mind here is as he would walk through Palestine and Asia and Macedonia, as he would walk through those places and he would look up into the heavens at night, he would see the dark backdrop of space, and against the dark backdrop of space, he would see these brilliant stars that would shine in the sky. And he's saying of you and me that you and I need to shine for Jesus like those stars against the backdrop of darkness. And so today we want to talk about what it means to be children of light and lights in the world. And so the takeaway that we have today is simply this, that we demonstrate the power of the gospel. We demonstrate lives that are worthy of the gospel as we live spiritually transformed lives against the backdrop of a dark culture. That you and I are called as followers of Jesus Christ to be evidences of spiritual transformation. And that as you and I commit to living our lives for the gospel... That what will happen is that we will be, as he says here in these verses, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what God wants for you and me at Central Park Baptist Church this morning. That we demonstrate that the gospel is the power of God to salvation through the very quality of the lives that we live as we are being transformed by the Holy Spirit. So how do we live as lights for the gospel? Well, we live as lights for the gospel in three ways that Paul tells us here. Number one, we live as lights for the gospel by working out our salvation by grace enablement. By working out our salvation by or through the enablement of God's grace. Look again at verse 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul, if you remember the context of this passage, Paul is in prison in Rome. 
And the Philippians had sent a letter to Paul and, and inquiring about how he was doing and inquiring about his imprisonment by way of their friend Epaphroditus. And Paul had already written them once telling them about his present condition and how God was using it as, as a way to demonstrate the gospel there in Rome among the Roman soldiers. And Paul says, I don't really know right now what's going to happen. I might be released from prison. I might not. Either way, to live as Christ and to die is gain. And so you see when Paul talks here about their obedience in his presence as well as in their absence, they're, they're wondering, is Paul ever going to come to see us again? And Paul is saying, whether I come and see you again or whether I don't, God has a plan for you. And that plan is that you are to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling according to the grace of God that works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In light of the glorious example of Jesus Christ, Paul reminds you and me that what we have to do as followers of Jesus is to fight for the practical working of the gospel into the daily part of our lives. In other words, the gospel is not just a message that we believe with our heads, but the gospel is a message that should influence everything about us. And that it should, it should not only enter our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ, but it should work itself out in the way that we live on a daily basis. The word work out here, when he says work out your salvation, is an active word. And it means to carry out to a goal or to carry something to its ultimate conclusion. It's a word which speaks of exertion. It's an active word which speaks of effort on our part. In other words, that if you're a Christian, there is something that God expects of you to bring to the table in your continuing goal towards being like Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder to us of this that I think many times we forget in the church. We forget that God has an intended goal for you spiritually. God has something that He wants you to become. He is not satisfied for you to stay in the same spiritual condition as He found you. Stagnation in the, in the Christian life is not God's will and it is not good for us. It is not good for us to just continue to go through the religious motions until somehow or another Jesus calls us home or comes back. And it means this, that if you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, then there is something true of you internally in your spiritual nature that God desires to be true of you externally in your daily living. Let me say that again. If you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, then there is something that is true of you internally that God wants to be true of you externally. See, the Bible tells us that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that we are made holy, that, we, we, that when God looks at us, He sees us as holy, pure, separate, and distinct from the world. Now, many of you know, because you, you, you know what your life is like, that if you evaluate your life on a daily or a weekly basis, that your life is probably on a, on, a, on a practical level very far from being the kind of holy person that God wants you to be. But what God is wanting is God wants us to work out in practice what we are in position. That we are children of God and that we are holy and righteous before Him. But now we need to work that out in our life as the gospel continues to work inside of us. Which brings us to the first subpoint in your notes there and that is simply this. That the Christian life is never meant to be a passive waiting for future perfection. 
The Christian life is never meant to be a passive just waiting for some sort of future day in which God comes back to get you. The Christian life is as much about our active obedience and our fight to work out the daily implications of the gospel in practical ways as it is about remembering something that we believed in many years ago. And I think we have a deep danger in the evangelical church today. I've been a pastor now for about 10 years. I've been working in ministry for about 28 years. And one of the, one of the dangers that I see in the church today is that we have often emphasized that salvation is more about praying a sinner's prayer than it is about faith and belief in the gospel that is marked by repentance and growing in Christ-likeness. Many of us grew up in an evangelical culture where all it meant to be saved is to, is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and come down and pray this prayer and get baptized and, and now you've, you've punched your ticket to heaven. And as long as you prayed the prayer and as long as you jumped through the right hoops, then you're right, you're secure. And we forget that, that God never presents that as salvation in the Bible. God never presents that salvation is praying some sort of prayer. Salvation is about faith in Jesus Christ, belief in the gospel, and repentance of sin and growing in Christ's likeness. That's what salvation is about. And consequently, we have church pews that are filled with people who think they have checked the right spiritual boxes to ensure a reservation in heaven who do not bear the fruit of the Spirit, who are not growing to look more like Jesus, and in many cases are still lost even though their names are on the membership roles of churches. We have church pews that, that are continually filled with people who think that my salvation is secured because I jumped through some spiritual hoop 20 years ago even though there's no, no love for Jesus Christ, no, no real evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And perhaps that's you today. It was me. It was me for several years that I thought I'd jump through the right religious hoops and the right boxes, but yet I didn't have an assurance of salvation and a peace with God that only comes from believing the gospel. You see, the Christian life is not about passively waiting until the day that we get a mansion in heaven. The Christian life is about a daily battle where we fight to believe in the gospel and we fight for obedience to the gospel against our sinful flesh that continually wants to draw us back into sin and unbelief. The Christian life is not about just, I've prayed my prayer and I'm just waiting for God to take me to glory. That's not what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is about working out your salvation with fear and trembling as God continues to work in you through the power of the gospel. And that's what he says here. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? It means that that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, then we remember the holiness of God and we remember His nearness and we remember that when we come in this place to worship, we come in to worship the very same God that, that presented Himself to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And what was Isaiah's response when he saw the Lord high and lifted up? Do you remember what it was? Woe! <laughs> Not woe as in that's really cool, like woe, I'm in trouble. Woe to me, I'm an unclean man and I live among an unclean people. And there was a sense of holiness and reverence every single time he entered the presence of the Lord. And yet we have people that come to church who say they're Christians who walk in here with indifference, who are bored and can't wait till they get out of here and get on with the rest of their day. We work at our salvation with fear and trembling because as we gather together here as God's people, the one we are singing these songs to, is the holy, righteous God of the universe. 
He's the one that angels right now are circling his throne singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the whole earth is full of his glory. And you won't even bother to sing the song on the screen because you don't even like what it says. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we also work out our salvation by divine enablement as God works in us, which brings us to another important point, and that is that salvation is not just about justification and receiving forgiveness of our sins. It's about conformity to Christ. And so your notes say it this way, that what Paul is telling us here is that salvation is about how God works for us in justification. God works for us on our behalf. God sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins, to pay a debt that you and I can't pay. And so we can't save ourselves. We are dependent upon God to, to pay our sin debt for us, and God works for us, but that's not the end of salvation. God works for us, and then we work to be like Christ as God works in us. You see that? God works for us on our behalf to provide everything we need to trust in Christ and in the gospel, but He doesn't just say, okay, that's it, I'll see you in about 50 years. No, he says, continue to work out your own salvation. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, there's a part that you and I play in our sanctification, in our development towards Christ's likeness. God works for us and gives us everything we need to believe in him, but he doesn't say that's enough just to believe. He says, now make the practical outworking of that in your life as you daily believe the gospel and as the gospel continues to change you. God works in you as you work out your salvation. It says here in your notes that God provides both the desire for obedience as well as the power to obey. That's what it says there. God works to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in us to give us the desire to obey Him, the will to obey Him. God works through the gospel. God works through the preaching of His Word. God works through, through your reading of the Word. God works through the people of God to give you the desire to be more like Jesus Christ. And then He also works in, in giving you the power to do so. He gives you the power to work for His good pleasure. And so what are the means by which he does that? We've already mentioned a few of them. He, he does that through our exposure to the Word of God. One of the ways that God works out our salvation is when we, when we take time every single day to stop from the busyness of, of our daily lives and just simply go to the Lord and read the bread of life and say, Holy Spirit, I want to interact. I need a word from the Lord this morning. God works in the Word of God to change us. God works in prayer to change us. God works in the preaching of His Word and in the church. God works through careful self and continual self-examination as we continue to, to look into our hearts, to check our motives, to check our affections, to check the things that we love, to check the things that we worship, to, to, to look at the way that we spend our lives and the, way, the words that we say. God works through many different ways to help us to will and to work according to His good pleasure. But His Main point is simply this. If you and I have been truly transformed by the gospel, then you and I ought to live lives that are worthy of that gospel. And one way that we do that is through the working out of our salvation in cooperation with the Spirit of God. That we don't just decide to sit by and passively check religious boxes and attend church, but we understand that God has an intended goal for you. 
That God's goal for you is that you would look more like Jesus Christ today than you did a week ago or six months ago or six years ago. And that God would want you to look more like Jesus Christ five years from now than He does right now. And He's not just going to passively make that happen in your life. He's going to do that as you submit yourself to working out your salvation. To studying God's Word. To submitting to Bible study with God's people. To praying. To continually interacting with the Spirit of God. And saying every single day, Lord Jesus, make me more like you today than I was yesterday. So one of the ways that we live as lights for the gospel is to work out our salvation. But secondly, another way that we live as lights for the gospel is that as we commit to doing all things with a sense of purity and integrity. We commit to doing all things with a sense of purity and integrity. Look at verses 14 through 16. The Bible says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation as you shine among whom as you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may, may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain here Paul connects verses 12 through 13 with with the practical public display of our witness around us He says we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but then we are also to to do all things, everything we do with a sense of integrity and with a sense of purity in our lives. And it's as the Spirit of God works in us through the gospel that it begins to work through us in sanctification that God begins then to work through us to be examples of that gospel to the lost world around us. It's as we believe in the gospel and it's as we continue to trust in the gospel and to work out our salvation that the spirit of God begins to work through us and then God begins to send us out into a dark world to be examples of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be examples of spiritual transformation. You see the reality of it is is that people are not going to come to faith in Jesus Christ simply by the truth of what we believe but by how that truth is lived through our lives. It's as we live lives that are submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ that people say there's something distinctive about that person. That person's not just a religious person. That person's not just a good person. There's something about the way that person speaks. There's something about the way that person talks. There's something about the way they live their life. There's something about the the way that they do their work when they're at work. It's something about their life that demonstrates that what they believe is really real. And we do that by committing to doing all things in our life with purity and integrity. You see, by purity, Paul doesn't mean that we are perfect or that we are without sin. He doesn't say that we are children who are without sin, but he basically says that we live our lives as children without blemish. Doesn't mean that we're sinless. Doesn't mean that we're not going to make mistakes in our Christian life doesn't mean that we're not going to fall back into our sinful flesh. But, but purity means that we are people who are striving to keep our lives from being stained by sin as we engage with the lost world around us. Purity means that we set ourselves to be distinctive. That there are certain things that should not be true of the followers of Jesus Christ that are true of other people in this world. That we live our lives with a different standard. And it's not that we walk around being holier than thou and better than everybody else, but that we commit our lives as much as possible to keep our lives being free from the stain of sin. 
We've seen the stain of sin, unfortunately, within our own Southern Baptist Convention in the last couple of weeks. As a news report came out about the last 20 years and about people who, who were in our own convention of churches, some of whom were employed by churches, others who were volunteers working in churches, who, who projected a certain spiritual reality that wasn't true inwardly and inside they were, they were stained by the corruption of sexual sin and that began to work itself out into the lives of other people. And they sexually abused many people and caused a tremendous stain not only upon the church but also upon the Lord Jesus Christ. There are certain things that just should not be true of the followers of Jesus Christ. It's not that you and I are not tempted. It's not that you and I don't have to daily face the temptations of the flesh. But there's something about you and I that rings true. That's what integrity is. Integrity means to, to ring true, that we are what we say we are, that what comes out of our mouth in public is true of us in private. And integrity means that we don't say that we believe one thing while our actions demonstrate that we really believe something else. You ever come across a person who says they're a Christian? Maybe you work with them or you live in the same neighborhood with them. And they say they're a Christian. They may even go to church a lot. But when they gather around the other co-workers and everybody begins to tell stories, they, they tend to tell off-color jokes. They tend, to, they tend to speak in such a way that just makes you feel a little bit awkward around them. And yet they say they're a follower of Jesus Christ. There's something that doesn't ring true about that. There's something that, that lacks integrity of a follower of Jesus Christ who would, who would say, I'm a Christian and I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet in the way that they carry themselves out in the world, there's nothing distinctive about them. They look just like everybody else. They have the same values of everybody else. They talk about the same things everybody else talks about. They're, they seem to have the same affections that other people do. And there seems to be nothing distinctive about their life. Paul says that you and I are to do all things without complaining or grumbling, which brings us to kind of the first sub-point here, which means that you and I need to understand the power of our words. You and I need to understand the power of our words. When Paul says to do all things, this is a comprehensive command that covers everything that you and I do as Christians. It covers how we work. It covers how we engage with the people in our neighborhood. It covers how we, how we go out and serve in the community. It's very similar to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether he's, when he says, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. It's a comprehensive command. Do all things and do all things how? Without complaining and grumbling. Paul specifically addresses the words that you and I use as Christians or our manner of speech. The speech of Christians should be absent of the qualities of grumbling and disputing. In other words, this is what Paul is saying to you and me. What you say and how you say things are just as important to your Christian witness as anything that you do. Have you ever known a person who's a Christian whose witness is not really destroyed by the things they do, but it's destroyed by the way they talk? Now, I'll tell you that my experience in the church has brought me in contact with many wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ who are excellent examples of integrity in speech. And I've met hundreds of people through my experience as a pastor and as a minister whose words are continually marked by grace and encouragement and, and, and hopefulness. And I've had people in my life that even when they have to tell me the truth, 
the hard truth, they do so in a, in a graceful manner. They do so in such a way that, that comes with the grace of God, even if they have to tell me something about myself that I don't want to hear. But my experience has also brought me into contact with a lot of people in the church who claim to be followers of Jesus, but their manner of speech is often marked by contentiousness, grumbling, gossip, negativity, disputing. I've met a lot of people who say they're followers of Jesus Christ that to be honest with you, I spend about five minutes with them and I've had about enough. I don't really want to spend any more time with them. Do you remember the two guys on the Muppet that, Muppets that always sat up in the, in the booth up there? You remember those? I don't remember what their names were. Somebody might, and you can remind me afterwards. But there are those two guys up there. No matter what was going on down there, they were up there. They always had something critical to say about it, right? They always had to grumble or complain or, or put people down. And unfortunately, I've met a whole lot of people that are just like those two Muppets in the church. And everything that comes out of their mouth is negative. Everything that comes out of their mouth is critical. All they ever do is grumble and complain. When they come to see the pastor, they don't come to tell you how much they enjoy the church. They come to tell you what they don't like about the church. And they're just continually complaining and grumbling. Or when they come, they don't come in order to, to sincerely want to help something. They want to come and, and share some negativity or some gossip. Some of you have met these types of church members too. Some of you have been hurt by them. Some of you may have even vowed for a while to leave the church because of the words of someone who claimed to be a follower of Jesus. Paul tells us here that we must understand the power of our words and know that our words and our tongues are great vehicles for the truth of our gospel, but they are also great vehicles which can do damage to the witness of the gospel. Few things can damage your witness more than what you say and how you say it in a lost world around us. This is why Paul says to the church in Galatians, let your manner of speech always be seasoned with grace. That everything that comes out of the mouth of a follower of Jesus Christ ought to carry with it the grace of God. We need to understand the power of our words. But Paul also encourages us to shine as lights in the darkness. And we talked about this just a second ago. That as, as followers of Jesus Christ, we commit ourselves to living our lives with purity and integrity because when we do so, we will stand out as bright lights against a dark background. As we already said, Paul likely had in mind the brilliance of the, of the night sky and the stars in the areas that he lived. But, but there's another phrase here that Paul was probably alluding to. It's found in Daniel chapter 12. It's not on your screen. I just want you to listen to it. I believe that when Paul was speaking about shining his lights, he was going back to the words of the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, in which Daniel wrote, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I think that's what Paul had in mind. That there's a time coming when the gospel is going to be made manifest. 
And when the gospel comes, there are going to be those whose names are found written in the book of life and, and they're, going to, they're going to awake to everlasting life. And there are some who are going to, to be continued in lostness and shame and contempt. And that those who've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ should shine as lights against the backdrop of a dark culture. I believe this is exactly what Jesus had in mind as well in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, You are the light of the world. And you, couldn't, you shouldn't take your light and hide it under a basket, but you should take it and put it on a lampstand for all to see. Paul says that you and I are to commit to living gospel-worthy lives, and when we do, we stand out as the true children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The world we live in is a dark place. The world we live in is a, is a world that is marked by sin and crookedness and evil and blasphemy and corruption and wickedness. And the reality is that the moral trajectory of the world in which we live in is not improving, it's deteriorating. And it's deteriorating even in spite of the public witness of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for over 2,000 years. God established the church of the Lord Jesus on Pentecost Sunday and the followers of Jesus Christ have been proclaiming the gospel for 2,000 years and yet our world is not becoming better because of it. Our world is continuing to deteriorate into sin. We are still in the midst of a very crooked and wicked generation that needs to see the true followers of Jesus. So we shine as lights in the darkness. But third, he implores us to hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the word of life. What does that mean? It's a reference to holding fast to the gospel. He's reminding us that belief in the gospel matters greatly in the midst of a dark and perverse world. He's reminding us that, that while we shine as lights in the, in the darkness, you and I have to hold on to something, and what we hold on to is the word of life, the word of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus. We are continually brought back to the fact that, that you and I, without Jesus Christ, are hopeless, helpless Enemies of God, but because Jesus Christ has come and given his life for us and earned the righteousness that we could not earn, that because we by faith trust in that and repent of our sins, we're going to hold on to that. And when we do, God's going to use us for his glory. You see, what we believe and hold on to internally influences how you and I live externally. And this is why we need regular daily and weekly reminders about the gospel. We need daily reminders about the gospel through our personal time in God's Word. And we need regular reminders about the gospel when we gather together as God's people. That's why we come here on Sunday. The worship gathering is not to be a weekly event designed to entertain God's people with music and humorous stories and helpful anecdotes. That's not the purpose of corporate worship. This is not a gathering of entertainment for saints. This is a battlefield. And the, war, the worship time is, is a corporate gathering where the war room of Jesus Christ, the, the saints of God, gather to be reminded of the glory of our King and to be energized to continue to fight the good fight in a dark and perverse world. When we come here, we don't come here to be entertained. We come here to be challenged by the gospel by our commander and king. Which brings us to the final point, and that is simply this, that we live as lights for the gospel by pouring out our lives in joyous service to Jesus Christ. 
Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice in me. As Paul is writing these words to encourage his fellow Christians, he has a future event in mind. He speaks in verse 16 about the day of Christ. And he says, I I want when Christ comes back on that day, I want to, to know when I stand before Christ that I didn't run this race in vain, that I didn't do this ministry for, for no good reason. And how that's going to be proven is by how you as the followers of Jesus Christ live for the gospel. That as you stand out as lights in the darkness, that that will prove to the Lord Jesus that my ministry wasn't in vain. But then he speaks about being poured out as a drink offering, which is an interesting picture. It takes us back to the uncertainty that Paul speaks about in, in verses 18 through 26 when he speaks about the uncertainty of his imprisonment. And back then, if you remember, Paul wasn't sure whether he would be released from prison or not, but he said to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so Paul says whether he was to see his friends in Philippi again or not, they were to live lives worthy of the gospel and shine as lights in the darkness. And so Paul is basically saying this, I don't know whether I'm going to be released. I don't know what God has in store for me. And I may be released to be able to continue with ministry and God may decide that it's time for me to go home. But whenever the Lord Jesus chooses to be done with me, I just want to be an offering for Him. That's what he's saying. I just want to be an offering for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul understood the reality of gospel transformation and that is simply this, that that when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we die to ourselves. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul says, I died a long time ago. And the guy who was Paul is dead. He no longer matters. The only thing that matters is Jesus Christ. And so may God use me as a sacrificial offering for him in whatever way that he wants to. The word picture here is stunning. Because in both Jewish sacrifices as well as pagan sacrifices... They would use animal sacrifices in which the priest would sacrifice an animal and then he would pour out a a drink offering on top of the animal. Here's the picture. The priest offers up the animal as a sacrifice to God and the blood of the animal is spilled out to to demonstrate the holiness of God and, and, and the reconciliation of our sin. And there the carcass sits with its life taken out and, and the blood has been spilt, and then the priest would, would take a cup and he would pour wine into it. And rather than drinking that wine, he would pour that wine over the carcass of the animal, and that wine would be sacrificed to the animal. The wine was a lesser sacrifice in light of the greater sacrifice that the animal gave. The animal gave its life, and the wine was just being poured out as another offering on top of that. And Paul says, you know what I want to be? I want to be that wine that's poured out over the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I'm nothing. I'm absolutely nothing, and my life matters for absolutely nothing. And when God is through with me, may God just pour me out over the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God use me up in His service, and for that I will rejoice. In light of the sacrifice, everyone remembers the lamb, but no one remembers the drink. Everyone remembers what the lamb gave up. Nobody thinks about the drink that's poured out. What Paul says of himself and what he says for you and me is simply this. May our greatest joy come 
from being a sacrificial offering for Jesus Christ. May our greatest joy in life come not from status that we attain, but may it come from being nothing more than a sacrificial offering for Jesus Christ. May we, like Paul, become so fully committed to living for the Lord Jesus that when our time comes, we can look back at all of it and say, you know what, I'm nothing but a drink offering being poured out for the Lord Jesus. That once we trust in Christ by faith, we no longer have the life we once had. That we have died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God, according to Colossians. And that you and I are, you and I are called not to live for ourselves, but you and I are called to be living sacrifices for the Lord Jesus. That's our purpose here. Our purpose here is not just to passively wait and do the best we can and, and accumulate all the treasures of this world only for them to turn to rust and dust when, when, when we die, but that we're to give our lives for the kingdom of God and that we're to do everything we can to store up treasures in heaven and to be Romans 12 living sacrifices for the Lord Jesus. And so may God, by the power of His grace, mold us into children of God and into lights for the gospel. May you and I be people who demonstrate the gospel by working out our salvation by the enablement of God's grace in us. May we be lights for the gospel by doing all things with purity and integrity. And may you and I be lights in the gospel by pouring out our lives in joyous service to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God wants for you and me. And so my question is, where are you with that? Are you working out your salvation? Are you continuing to go back to the Lord Jesus Christ saying, God, I just want you to use me for your service. Continue to, to pour into me every single day the gospel of Jesus Christ and continue to use me in the places that you put me as an example of the gospel to the people around me. And at the end of the day, would you just pour me out as an offering for you? Some of you here today can't say that because you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're like I talked about earlier. You heard somebody preach a message years ago and you felt really guilty about some mistakes that you made and you walked down an aisle and somebody said, you want to be a Christian? And you said, yeah, I want to be a Christian. They said, all you got to do is pray this prayer. And you prayed the prayer and you repeated the prayer, but the reality of it is, is that ever since then, you've not lived your life for Jesus Christ. You've lived your life for yourself. And you lived your life for yourself under the banner of religion. And the reality of it is, is that when I talk about having assurance of salvation, when I talk about knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it just bounces off because you have no idea what that means. But the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can give up empty, dead religious works to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in just a moment as we sing a song of invitation, I want to give you an opportunity to trust in the Lord Jesus today. To come and just simply bow your knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that, that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you rose from the grave. And I believe that that message can save me if I would just submit, my sense, submit myself to you, trust you as Savior and Lord. And, and today you can be saved. Today you can go out of here a new creature, a new person different than when you came in. So when we sing this song in just a moment, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Maybe you're not ready to take that step this morning to walk down in front of a bunch of people. That's fine. You can talk to one of our staff after church and we'll be glad to share with you how you can know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you need to come here today because as, as David said earlier, you just need to come to the altar and say, you know, Jesus, you've called me to be a light shining in the darkness, but the reality of it is there's not been much in my life that resembles the Lord Jesus and I just come here today to submit myself to you afresh and anew. 
Whatever it is, don't leave here today the same as you came in. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus paid it all. We thank you that, that he has done everything that is necessary for us to be perfectly reconciled with you this morning. Now I pray, Father, you would, you would give some the faith to believe that message today. Father, I pray you would help them to, to turn aside from sin and to turn aside from, from their own life that they built for themselves and to trust Jesus by faith today. And that message is not just for those of us who, who are lost in this place. That message is for those of us who, who've been saved for a long time. May we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today and not in anything that we have done. And God, may you use us as examples for you. May we shine as lights in the midst of darkness. So, Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, bring the dead to life today? And would you, would you give anyone here today who needs to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, would you give them the strength and the courage to admit that today? And by faith, trust in Jesus and repent of their sins. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you sing this song of response? And respond as the Lord leads you.